Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 375. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 375 you're listening to. My guest today is Hillary Johnson, producer, engineer based in New York. This is Hillary's second appearance on the show. Her first appearance, get this, was episode number three. Yeah, long time ago. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes. You got to have a listen to that. Beyond doing recording and producing, she is also a mastering engineer and she's doing DJing these days as well as live streaming. She's a technician. She's an AV designer. She's got a lot going on. So we're going to talk about all that. Very much looking forward to having her back on the show. Hillary Johnson coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about collectors and users. The crux of what we're going to talk about here is, are you a collector of gear or are you a user of gear? Either one is totally legit and either one can be quite enjoyable, as we know. Collectors, of course, are out for the rare, the thing that is going to be expensive to buy, most likely, and they have a plan that it will go up in value. As we talked about on our episode number 335 with Dan Alexander, there are people out there in the world who are buying up pieces of gear and sitting on them. And you might have mixed feelings about that. Some of you might say, oh, that's a waste. For those that are collectors where that's their focus, that is a business decision through and through. It's an investment, a true investment, because microphones such as U47s, Elam 251s, you know, certain vintages of Neve consoles go up in value year after year. And if you listen to that episode with Dan Alexander, you can certainly get Dan's perspective on that. And I'll put a link in the show notes to Dan's book, of course, because I really think it will tell the story because you could see some pricing, you know, actually not even that long ago, you know, honestly, like the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And then you can think about what those pieces of gear mentioned in that book cost now. That'll give you an idea of the collector uh, mentality, possibly. Totally legit, though. Not knocking anybody who does that. I, You know, it's like if you collect, uh, I don't know, baseball cards that go up in value or Pez or bobbleheads. My youngest son collects Funko Pops and really tracks the value of those. Really interesting. So anyways, collectors, yeah, it's it's all about finding the rare piece, holding on to it, hoping it goes up in value and liquidating it at some point in the future so it can fund, I don't know, your retirement, your purchase of a home, more gear. I don't know. It's a thing for sure. Users of gear. Also a business decision when we buy gear because we are putting it to use in our business. It's totally legit. Now, whether it goes up in value is another story because not all of us are buying pieces of gear that we think is going to go up in value. And, you know, I don't want to name any names of companies or pieces of gear or throw anybody under the bus here, but there's definitely a lot of gear out there that is not going to go up in value. There's just hundreds and thousands and millions of versions of whatever it is you're buying, whether it's a little miniature powered set of speakers or a meter, 
there's just stuff that is just not going to be that rare that in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we'll be able to find them on eBay because there'll be a collector out there who bought them new and kept them in the box, right? But uh, when we buy gear, though, you know, I'm always a big proponent of buying the best thing to do the job that you can afford. Now, that's not to say that you should buy the most expensive thing just for the sake of it, obviously. You know, buy what makes sense to you in your budget that helps you get the job done. This is where I, I'm always a big fan of kind of thinking in terms of like an electrician or a plumber. It's like, do you go out and buy the most expensive van to drive around to your clients in? Mm, not necessarily. You're going to buy the van that does the job, that holds all of the equipment, something that you can put ladders on top of, just that working class uh, trades tradesperson kind of mentality is something that I think some of us could do with a little bit of. You know, because I think we we get a little um, too excited about some of the uh, gear out there and think, well, I need the most expensive thing because I'm, you know, I'm doing the most valuable work possible. Well, OK, I get it. You know, fair enough. You, you, you've you got a, a great vocalist and you, maybe you feel like you need to spend a crap ton of money on a microphone to capture that vocalist. Well, you know, you might want to revisit that thought or consider that thought for 24 to 48 hours before you run out and spend 30, 40 grand on the rare U47, right? Can you rent one? Can you get a knockoff? Will it do the same thing? Remember, it is about the performance and obviously the gear just highlights a good performance. Uh, fancy gear is not going to make a bad performance any better. It's just gonna sound like a really great bad performance, right? I kind of have my own mantra when it comes to this stuff. When you buy new, remember, it's gonna lose a little value. Uh, some things hold their value pretty well, but most things out there in the pro audio world do not increase in value as you buy them. So think it through. Um, there's different things you can do to save some money on gear. Of course, you can buy used. That's the number one thing. You can, of course, buy B stock from certain manufacturers. Certain manufacturers have used gear that may have been used at a trade show, but it's not really that used. It's just been out of the box. It's been touched. It's, you know, it's been turned up and played with a little bit. And maybe it's got a couple dings on it. That's that's one way to look. You know, it's kind of like if you're buying an Apple computer, you know, you can go down and find a refurbished machine. If you go down to the very bottom of Apple's uh, page for their store and look, it'll say, you know, refurbished. And sometimes that can be a great deal because it carries with it a warranty and you can get great value out of that that computer. And obviously, you know, buying new, that's totally legit too, right? Because when you buy new, it, you know, it's brand new. Nobody's been, you know, touching it on a showroom floor and you get a warranty with it. And if there's a problem, obviously you have some recourse. You can go and you can get some help with that. And when you buy from, you know, reputable dealers, of course, that's even better. So while it's tempting to go and buy off, uh, you know, sites like eBay, sometimes nothing beats the support of a manufacturer and a retailer together uh, to help you solve any problems that might arise. I know that uh, that's been really helpful to me in the past. So whether you are a collector or a user, and I don't know, maybe there are collectors slash users out there who say, well, I'm going to collect, you know, these rare pieces, I'm going to use them. But keep in mind, you're going to need to maintain them so that they hold their value. You need to take care of those things if you want them to be part of the collection that you will sell off in the future. Whatever you decide, that's up to you. Either one, totally legit, but always interesting to examine within ourselves 
what we are buying for. At the end of the day, make wise choices with your gear when it comes to purchases and uh, know what you're buying, know what the long-term value could potentially be. Talk to people if you are collecting. And if you are not collecting and you're just buying for the job, make sure you're getting the right piece of gear for the job. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Hillary Johnson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hillary, welcome back to the podcast. Hi. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Pretty damn good. Excellent. You're coming on this podcast so many years later, it's unbelievable. I was looking back, I was like, wow, she was number three. Number three. You still live in New York? I still live in New York State. New York State, whereas before you were living in New York City. I was living in New York City before, as of two months ago. 
But I took the adult plunge and bought a house. And my uh, partner and I moved up to Westchester County in New York, which is about an hour north of the city. Wow. And it's a nice house. And I've left my rent-stabilized apartment of 25 years. Oh, my gosh. To become a homeowner, which is a huge change. Yeah. Very adult of you. (laughs) It really is. It's kind of crazy. I'm learning all about oil, septic tanks, water wells, deer, (laughs) ticks, Asian ladybugs, sorry, Asian lady beetles, Uh stink bugs, how much snow you really have to shovel. Lots of things. Wow. But I'm also learning about how to live in the quiet and how to live where there's not people around you or right outside of your home smoking weed, playing hip hop at like really loud volumes in their cars, puking on the streets, littering. So it's not such a bad life. <laughs> wow. It's a whole new, whole new world for you. It really is. It's, it's almost like a 180. I made that adulting move many years ago, but I can't say it made me an adult. Well, no, of course not. I just put stripes on my wall in my office. So I'm definitely, and my ceiling. So definitely not an adult. This is a pretty big change. How does that affect your audio career, your career in general? Well, what I'm looking forward to is being able to enjoy a little bit more of the days while I'm doing my my day job, which is not my career, but it has become my my full-time thing that I do, which is designing for an AV, an audiovisual integrator or a design company and integration company. And so that's what I do all the time during the day, during the week. And I'm trying to use my peace and quiet to make myself not work so hard so that I have time to do what I really love to do, which is make records. I've gotten recently, since the pandemic, gotten into live streaming so that I can play with tech and cameras and lights and all sorts of fun stuff like that. So this is where, and and also with the house, there's an unfinished basement, which I'm hoping Mm. in the near future will become a finished basement to be able to do you know what. Shh, don't tell anybody. (laughs) What do we all think finished basements and outboard barns and buildings become? Exactly, exactly. And our neighbors aren't close, so Uh, you know what that means. Yeah. Loud drums. Absolutely. Tell me about the live streaming thing. What's going on there? What are you doing? Well, so as you may or may not know, I am also a DJ, Mm -hmm. underground alternative not like a techno DJ or anything like that, a club DJ in a sense. And I've done that since 30 years or something. And with the pandemic, all of us in the clubs were forced uh, you know, to stay home, obviously. So a lot of DJs started turning to Twitch and pointing the cameras at themselves and setting up their laptops and cameras and lights and all that stuff to basically bring the club to, to people's homes. And I really, really liked the idea because I got to explore a lot of the things that I was selling, actually, or designing for clients as part of my day job, meaning cameras, Mm -hmm. you know, professional broadcast video cameras, NDI networking, using network cameras, a little bit of lights and using software that I hadn't used before. So I got all into it. I was like, hardcore, I'm going in. This is what I'm going to do. And I started basically doing a live stream once a week 
The only difference is that I also sort of wanted to have it be like a podcast in the sense that what I had initially was I had guests who were also women, who were also DJs or musicians, who were also vegan, who were also alternative. And they would do a guest set. They would also record a video ahead of time that I would play of them like cooking something vegan. And I would intersperse that with the DJ sets. So I have, the name of the, of the stream is called Kale Shelter. <laughs> which if you're familiar at all with, you know, well, you're based on your age, I'm sure you know what that's a reference to. And so I just really threw myself into it. And once a week became prepping, editing, buying more tech, setting up more tech, a couple nights a week it would take that I would distract myself from the pandemic and not being able to do anything. And helping friends set up their stuff or giving advice through the, through the interwebs of how to make the most out of your crappy laptop and how to make sure that you don't have dropouts and <laughs> that sort of thing. So I became like a support for other people that were doing live streaming too. And that, that like took up so much time. So how am I, how am I doing this? And I, and I still have time to make records and have a day job. I just don't even know. Well, the day job, the day job is key there really, because mm -hmm. I mean, it funds the whole operation and allows you to it does. It does. be flexible with the live streaming, I assume. Yeah, and it also actually opened up some avenues because because I started doing it and I was also sort of designing these systems for clients for work, I got to get the tech and try it. So I've been doing R&D for my company at my house. At the same time, I would be able to actually use that equipment for my purposes. And at the same time, that's actually doing real R&D rather than just testing something for half an hour to see if it works or how it works, actually using it and actually learning, oh, this Blackmagic camera switcher is actually so great. It works great for like a day. But then like after a couple of weeks, it actually starts turning off all the time. And, you know, so I have some justification of when work gets me some, some nice tech, I can play with it and actually say, hey, this isn't actually so great. Or this is really great. We really need to start using this in our designs. So. You get to exercise a lot of different parts of your brain, the creative side, the performance side, the audio nerd side, and then you get to explore areas that may not have been in your repertoire prior to this, meaning cameras, etc., lighting. That's exactly right. Tell me about the AV design aspect of things. That's uh, a day job. It's a day job, okay. <laughs> Essentially what it is, is my company has corporate clients, clients that have event spaces, clients that have video production studios, some podcast studios, that sort of thing. Hospitality, some residential, but mostly I don't really do much residential. And essentially they are working with an architect and a general contractor and a MEP developer, all sorts of the, the different trades that fall under the construction realm. So you're building a space, you've got all these trades that are working on it. And we're, you know, my trade, AV, audiovisual, is very low down on the totem pole. So they'll tell us, this is what we have. We have these three rooms. We want them to be editing suites. It's going to be Pro Tools in here. It's going to be resolving here. We need to do voiceovers or we need to be able to edit and surround, record, mix and surround, whatever. And so I'll make recommendations and come up with budgets for them and work with a CAD engineer to develop architectural drawings, put symbols on drawings where power goes, where data goes, where cameras go, where microphones go, where speakers go, and then coordinate with the architects or all the other people who are involved to make it actually come to fruition. 
And then before the pandemic, I was also going out and commissioning the rooms as well, setting up the Pro Tools systems or making sure that the microphones were working or that sort of thing. Hmm. But since the pandemic, I pretty much haven't really been doing that because it's more work to actually get tested every day and go out in the field and wear a mask all the time. So I've been training people over Zoom how to do those things instead. Now, I know it's a day job, but I mean, there's got to be some level of satisfaction in that day job. Oh, certainly. I mean, of course, I wouldn't do it if there wasn't. I mean, it's a day job in the sense that it's not my passion. My passion is making records. But because those are few and far between, especially the past few years, I've found a way to express my creative and my technical needs through doing this for a company that I know trusts me and believes in me and wants me to succeed with them. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's actually not a day job. And I see myself being there with them for a long time. But again, it, it's not really five o'clock, but five, five o'clock hits, I'm done. I don't think about it anymore. I go down to the studio and I start editing or comping a vocal that I need to work on. That's the game plan. That's the ideal thing. So I don't, I don't take my work home with me, so to speak. That's why to me, it's a day job. It's not my calling. Yeah. How have you fared in the record-making aspect of your life during the pandemic? In 2014, lots of things have happened since then, including the pandemic. So how's that going and what are you doing to continue that? Well, certainly everything has slowed down since the pandemic. There were a couple of records that I was working on right when it hit. And one of them got finished over Zoom and I got to learn how to use Logic which was something I had always wanted to do for the past 10, 15 years, maybe, was learn how to use Logic, because most of the musicians that I worked with used Logic. And I thought I should learn how to use this because I can just work with people much more easily. But the problem was they were musicians, they weren't engineers, so they wouldn't be able to answer questions when I would say something like, well, how do you export a consolidated WAV file for me, rather than bounce a stereo track? And they wouldn't know. So finally, I just dug in, learned how to use Logic, and was able to record vocals using Zoom, but the other people on the other end were doing the recording, then they'd send me the files and we were doing mixing, going back and forth, sending like the logic package files and that sort of thing. And then another project that I was working on, we hadn't started yet, but we had scheduled time to go in and track basics and then everything happened. And so we had to wait maybe a year or something, maybe a year and a half into it, I think. We finally were able to get back in the studio. You know, it was weird because this is my first time in a studio wearing a mask and just bending over to set up a kick drum mic or getting in a closet with a mask, trying to like adjust the mic on a bass cabinet or something like that. It was a little weird for sure. And then there's people in the control room and this place was a, it was a very small control room. And luckily I knew the people, so I wasn't, they weren't really in my bubble, you know, at the time, but Mm -hmm. you get comfortable with people and you know, when they have had tests, been tested and that sort of thing. But other than those two projects, everything else I was doing was just very one-off here or there. In other words, I had a friend of mine came over to do vocals in my apartment at one point, and we just sort of did the social distancing so he could actually sing (laughs) without the mask. Right. But other than those couple of things, I just haven't really been doing records because there isn't, for me at least, isn't the calling for it as much as there was for all the other stuff. So I'm hoping that that changes and especially once I have time to sort of put together a room, I'll have more space because my apartment, I didn't have that much space. And people will be comfortable leaving the city and doing that thing that people do where they go and they go to a quiet place and make a record. 
So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. We'll check back in in, in another six years. <laughs> I'll say, oh, yeah, I've done zero records. <laughs> Nobody cares anymore. I'm too old. <laughs> or I'll be like, oh, my God, I, I had to quit my day job because I've got too much work. Uh, you're overwhelmed. Was that a concern or factor into your thinking when you were buying this house? Oh, yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It was either a room, like an isolated room with a super high ceiling, like a vaulted ceiling, wood kind of thing, or obviously an outdoor garage that I could convert, or worst case scenario, a basement. I ended up going with basement because in that sense, it's actually the least disruptive to neighbors because I didn't want to go and totally live in a really rural area. I mean, our neighbors are visible. You can see where their house is, even though it's very, very far away. So I know that we won't disturb them. But definitely the idea of buying a house was to have a separate office from the studio and to have enough room to also be able to, you know, a video set for my streaming. And so, and now I have, I have those things and um, obviously they're being created because we just moved in like a month ago. And my partner also has a room. He's an artist. So he also has a studio. And then we also have a guest room. So it's like all of these things were factored into, into the house that we chose. Non-audio question, but real estate question. How challenging did you find the process of buying a house outside of New York? Well, because we didn't plan it, it was just sort of something that came about because friends of ours bought a house a little over a year ago, and we started spending a lot of time with them in their house out of the city, learning what it's like to be in the exurbs, which is what it is. We're somewhere in between the suburbs and the a rural area. It's called exurb. And they were, this is also a friend of mine who's also a DJ who does live streaming and does club work. And so learning from them how their lives changed and how it also didn't change and just seeing how nice and quiet it was, we're like, maybe we could do this. Let's look. So we just started looking around in their area as well as other areas. It was a, a really good time. Mortgage interest rates were low and we found some places we liked and it actually happened really fast. We spent a weekend, we drove up, rented a car, drove up, looked at some spots, looked at some houses, liked one of them, went back the following week with the agent, looked at it again, made an offer, and then it turns out that the basement needed to be re-waterproofed and they needed a new roof. So we're like, no, we're new first-time homeowners. We can't handle any of that. That's too much. That's too much. So we retracted off. So that was all within a four days, five days. And then the following weekend, we went and looked at more places and we liked the place. And we went back up and looked at it again, made an offer. And that's the house I'm in right now. So it was very, very fast. And we were very comfortable with it because we had spent so much time with our friends and we saw that they didn't settle down. They still have a life in New York City. They still throw parties and go to the city regularly. I thought they can do it. We can do it. So I bought a car and I got a car and I got a house. <laughs> wow. And I got deer. <laughs> Next up is a dog. No, no. Another cat. Another cat. Eventually. Okay. Eventually. Eventually. Yeah. A little bit of, of an identity crisis that occurs in a person who has been a city dweller for a long time moving into this situation. Is that your experience? Not yet. Not yet. I mean, I'm 51 and I pretty much know what I'm about. And I know that this is the right thing for me. Mm -hmm. It's happening at the right time with the right person. And no matter what happens, it's still going to be good. I'm excited about it. 
Okay. No, no crises. Yeah, I think it may be a, a factor of age, honestly, and and just you yeah. know just maturity. Because when we did it twenty two years ago, moving from San Francisco to Oakland, I was having a mental breakdown in my own little world. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, we're moving to Oakland. That's crazy. And then once I got here or there, because I've moved further east since and done it, you oh, know, okay. a little over ten years ago. So now we're really in the burbs. We're bridging tunnelers. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, how often do you go back to the city? Once every couple months. Okay. And what do you do when you go there? Are you going for business or pleasure? Well, a little bit of both. Meetups with, gotcha. with people, uh, shows, events. Hey, let's take the kids to the symphony. Let's show them that. Or somebody's giving a talk. Let's go see that. I don't know why that sounded like you were making it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's no. Take we take the children to the symphony. Take the children to the symphony. No. <laughs> No, we take them to this thing where they play Home Alone, but the San Francisco Symphony will play the music to the movie live. So that's our version. Oh, oh, Sam and I went and saw Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. Oh my gosh. With that. That's unbelievable. I got to go do that. The first time we did it, we were right in the front. We were fifth row, I think it was. And so the, the mix, the blend of all the instruments was a little uneven because we were right there. And we weren't getting the whole picture. You know, I wasn't able to see everyone playing because I was just bombarded by the violins right there, right there. And then um, the second time when we went to see Empire, we were way back in the mezzanine, which it wasn't as loud, so it wasn't as enveloping, but the mix was great. Mm. Everything was even and beautiful, and I could watch people play. So definitely a cool experience to do something like that. And it's one in which I find I, I get caught up in the movie and then I forget, oh my gosh, the music that I'm listening to right now is coming from all these people sitting in front of you. It's like the most amazing experience. I think one of the coolest things was when they just did the intro pre-credit. 20th Century Fox theme. Dun, 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 oh, yeah, dun. exactly. That's so oh, awesome. That's cool. That's great. Oh my God, it's real. <laughs> and it's really nice also to see there's people on the stage that are younger and older. And it's a nice variety of folks. So you can just tell that obviously people are still interested in real instruments, which is, you know, a nice breath of fresh air. Yeah. You know, as, as an audio person, it's great to go experience that because I think it really reinvigorates the brain about, wow, that's right. This is how Mm -hmm. it sounds live. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they just, these symphonies in these, in these cities, they're amazing, Mm -hmm. amazing players. Now, what do you think is a a realistic timeline of you creating a studio situation in your basement? Well, we have several other rooms that we want to do first. And the money is spread out and budgeted for everything. I'm hoping within a year, I'm assuming spring or summer, this year I'll be able to do something even if it's not fully done. I mean, I could certainly go down there right now and record drums and bring my laptop and some small little interface and some mics and do something. So I can always do something. Mm-hmm. But as far as when is it, you know, have acoustics put up, deal with the ceiling, lighting, power, a proper separate room, all that stuff, I'm hoping a year, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes because we also want to get rid of the boiler and the oil tank in our basement and convert to either heat pumps or geothermal. And that's... Oh, Money, money, money. Yeah. Well, but but isn't heating oil money, money, money? Oil is friggin' expensive. I just dropped $700, and I think 
three weeks ago, $600. And then when we closed on a house, it was like $700. And this is all within a matter of two months, three months. Holy shit. <sighs> yeah. Well, apparently it just, it'll even out when the summer months happen, but it's a lot of money. And we have a very old boiler. The boiler is very old. So the option is to replace the boiler for 15 grand. That's stupid. You know, just convert everything oh and, pay my gosh. and finance it. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Well, so as we discussed, you know, we're in our 50s and we've experienced some things in our life financially that would educate us about this experience. So let's pretend we're not in our 50s and we're in our 20s or our 30s and we're audio people with an audio person's mentality about money or the mentality that many have about money, which is not always the best. What are some things that those in that position need to know if they want to buy a house in the future? What are some things that they could correct now that would set them up for the future and maybe give them the ability to have a great, great space. I think the question would be is if someone is a collector or a fan or an actual user of something, because I think it would be obvious to collect, buy, use microphones, for example, really high quality microphones and treat them like an investment because then later, when they're no longer cool or hip or trendy, you could potentially sell them and then you could use that money towards a down payment, I guess. And I think if, if you do have money but may, and maybe more than just to invest it in gear, actually build a studio. Because I have found in my past 25, 30 years of making records, the one thing that has hurt me is not having my own studio. And that is both because of being in New York where the day rates are extremely high for even small places. And also because there's so many of them that 
it's easier to find a place that has an engineer included in the cost. So for a lot of bands to have to pay a studio and pay me, I lost a lot of work. Uh. So I think if you have the money and you have the, the gumption, is that a word? Sure. To actually build a place that you will stay in and you will make it your own and treat that like an investment, that would be my recommendation. That would be my, my thought for someone who's young. Now, if somebody likes to travel a lot or they want to do live sound and go on tour or they like floating around from studio to studio, I would say that's a different story. And then in that case, use your time wisely and network as much as possible so that you you meet a lot of people that will and be nice to people because <laughs> that's actually one thing that's actually been very good for me is that I do know a lot of people from over the years because of traveling around and working at different studios. And I've had people come back to me years later and work with me again that remember working with me 10 years prior, 15 years prior. I mean, I still have two clients who I've been working with since the 90s that there's five or 10 years in between record mm-hmm. that I do with them. So I think it depends on what your interest is. If your interest is creating something, staying put, creating an investment, you know, because maybe you buy something or you maybe you lease something in a building that could then become your home. You know, maybe an opportunity presents itself. You're renting a space, but you invest in the equipment that later you can sell if you want to retire and use it towards buying a place. I think also the time for us buying the house now worked out because the apartment that I had was rent stabilized. If I had been renting at market value for 25 years, I would have no money. I was able to do this now at 50 because I've been saving money for years and years and years and years and years. Because everyone's like, oh, we should have done this 10 years ago. Why couldn't have done this 10 years ago? I wouldn't have been ready. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that does. So the, one of the key things there is saving mm. because that, that benefited you greatly. But based on what you said about not having your own space, you could have had more money because there was a lot of work that you missed out on by not having your own space. I don't know that I would have, I don't know that I would have necessarily had more money. Uh-huh. I probably would have had more records. I would have been doing more records. Yeah. You know, obviously the other thing is that because I was able to, I had a day job, I worked at a studio. I had a day job. I worked as a, a different studio as a technician for a while because I had jobs that kept me financially okay. I could say no to work. If you don't have that and you have to say yes to everything, Mm. then you're doing more records, right? Yeah. So I have found that all of the things that I've said no to, I've stood by and I've been happy with the fact that I've said no. I've never made Mm. a hip hop album in my whole life and I'm very proud of that. Um, Done a few pop records, but mm, not much, not really my thing. So in a sense, my own sense of self-worth as the type of, I hate using the word underground or alternative, but it makes sense. My sense of self-worth as an underground or alternative music maker or record maker is stronger than the need to have made money from doing those things. Hmm. And I can say that because I've had jobs and the jobs have paid my rent. If I was poor, I might not be saying that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that, that is the bonus. Some people will feel frustrated by having a day gig, but you could still be an audio professional with a day gig. There's no harm in that. And there's no, there shouldn't be any stigma in that either. Because Completely it, correct. Because it, it allows you to make better decisions about your professional career. The, the thing that you feel is your career. Otherwise, as you say, 
you're desperate. You're poor and you're taking everything that comes in the door. And that can be a colossal waste of time in some respects. It can be a teacher of in, in some respects, but it's also a waste of time in others. Yeah, I think if you want to be the kind of person that is very varied and maybe it's more than records you're doing, maybe it's commercial work and maybe there's theater audio or anything, you know, if you want to have that variety and you want to have a lot of knowledge and skills, then do everything, do everything that comes your way, as long as you don't let that beat you up, because obviously you need to be cognizant of your own heart and your own, your own passion. You know, you need to find, figure out what you want to do. And, and eventually that should dictate what work you take and what work you don't take. In other words, don't kill yourself with overwork. Yeah. Is, the, is my point there. You mentioned something earlier. You talked about learning logic. I too jumped in the logic pool. <laughs> it's a really good program. <laughs> you know, it's I had no idea. It's funny. Like on, on many levels for, for years I, I poo pooed it. You know, I was, Oh, logic's not logical. I can't figure it out. But I have a client. In fact, he just texted me in, in the middle of our conversation. We're doing a mixed touch up tomorrow over zoom and audio movers. And that's been our way of operating mm -hmm. through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. He's prolific, and it started in GarageBand, and he, then eventually I said, well, if yep. you're going to be in GarageBand, why don't we just both move to Logic and get familiar there? I learned a lot of stuff from him because he had been using GarageBand leading up to that, which kind of educated me about a bit of workflow. What's been your experience in, in I mean, you've been a Pro Tools person for probably as long as I have, so how yeah, was it? I, I mean, I've been using Pro Tools since I think version 4. Or four or five, I guess. I don't know, whatever was out in 95 or 96. And I had always seen Logic, right? I just never liked how it looked back then. And then I started having clients that were using it. And same thing, they just, they didn't really know how to use it technically. They knew how to use it creatively. So, okay, great. I don't know how to use Pro Tools creatively. I only know how to use it technically. Of course, I know how to use it creatively, but you know what I mean? I'm not a musician. Right. So I didn't know how to make Pro Tools work from a MIDI standpoint. When I finally set up a real studio at home, I bought a controller keyboard and started using some soft, soft sense. So at least I knew how to use, have every, everything connected. But people would come over and I'm like, it's weird that you can't punch and it's weird that you can't do this and blah, blah, blah. And then just forcing myself to use Logic for this last record that I worked on that had it where the, they were working with it and just seeing the differences First, okay, first of all, I can't, I'm a little slow, obviously, especially with editing, because I'm like, where's my command bracket? What's, oh, right, it's, it's <laughs> command arrow, okay. Or where's, uh, you know, how do I switch between the tools? Oh, I have to use the mouse, click, 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 it's slower. But the, uh, the time compression and expansion is so much cleaner, and I can sit down and use it on my laptop without having to have an interface. I know you can do that with Pro Tools now, but you still have to have connection to the internet or you have to have a dongle but I can just sit there and I can edit what <laughs> I can change sample rates in the middle of a session I can arm a track as I'm recording and then punch can't do that with pro tools so you know it's like there's the good things bad things about everything mm -hmm. certainly the cost for logic is a lot a lot better but I don't I don't poo-poo it like I used to yeah I'm the same 
I found that as bang for your buck, I mean, it's a great package. I could see why a lot of musicians gravitate towards it for its creative mm -hmm. use from a technical standpoint. And all my plugins worked in it. Oh, yeah. Installed, done. They work. Yeah. That's great. I can, use my, I can use my waves. I can use my whatever I want in Logic. Now I'm comfortable. That's really what it, what it was, is their, their plugins. I was like, meh, they're basic plugins. Okay, yeah, sure. But the minute I could start using my own plugins that I was familiar with, that was also what put me sort of over the, over the top. I was treated to this, and you'll love this. So I was having an issue, and I reached out to my friend Dave Earl. Dave used to be known as SF Logic Ninja, and he's actually now head of Logic at Apple. And so I kind of, you know, he helped me out solving a problem. I can't remember what the problem was, but then he said, Hey, I'd really like to set aside some time and do a zoom call with you. And I want to see one of your mixes and how you're working and how it's, how it's working for you, your experience. And uh, I'd like to show you a few things. He spent like over an hour on zoom with me, mm. just running through stuff going, Oh, okay. Well, let me show you a couple different things you might want to consider. Guy's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. He always has been, but now knowing That's he's great. the head of logic at Apple makes me just go, whoa. I might have to remember that soon from you. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen the work for record making in any capacity, whether it's mixes, mastering, what, whatever the job may be? Have you seen it start to pick up a little bit, ramp up as we get kind of, you know, wherever we are in this pandemic at this point in 2022? I haven't so much seen the recording world ramp up so much. I've seen people recording themselves and their their own bands ramp up. And I've obviously seen shows start again and people going back on tour and that sort of thing. But I haven't started seeing people go in the studio with, with a crew quite yet. But I've also been very out of the loop for the past six months from going through the craziness of buying a house. But I expect to see a lot of things kind of go back to that state when things get warmer. I think people will be anxious to go into a place where they can then go outside and take a break, you know, or get fresh air, I should mm -hmm. say. But I haven't really, I haven't seen it that much yet. Yeah. I, I've seen an increase in the number of clients with Logic making their own records <laughs> and then sending me the tracks to mix. Yeah. That's been, a, a I have constant. done some extra, I guess mastering has picked up a little bit for me. So maybe in that sense, the same, it's the same thing. It's, it's kind of people recording themselves because this is what everyone's been doing. Everyone has learned how to record themselves. And I, you know, it's actually funny. This is actually the perfect forum to talk about it because I don't know what your experience has been or what your opinion has been, but I feel like the first year of the pandemic, so many artists became more prolific than, I don't even know, 10 years, past 10 years or something. So many people were making music because they were forced to stay in their house and be creative, mm -hmm. right? So it was, it's, it was amazing just to hear all this new music, new music, new music with, that wasn't touched by somebody else. This was like pure, unadulterated, this is what I'm writing here it is. It's translated. You get to listen to it, right? That's the first, the first thing I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. So that was awesome. That was really, really great to see how many bands and, and solo artists and things were actually making music, putting their money where their mouth was. 
Now, on the other side of that coin, I felt like a lot of records that came out <laughs> in the last year or two suffered. Mm. Suffered artistically or sonically? Art, not artistically. Definitely not artistically. Because I think because these artists weren't restricted by a producer or a third party telling them, no, that's not so great, or maybe you should try it this way. They were actually able to create on their own, which I think that part is amazing. What I'm talking about is vocals that are out of key, singing out of key, or out of, or out of, just pitchy, to, you know, guitars maybe not in tune so well, maybe the mix not so great, weird choice of reverbs or delays, too much low end, not enough low end. <laughs> like, I feel like there were a lot of records that came out that just like, doesn't sound very good. Hmm. Well, you know, when you put it all in their hands, I mean. Yeah. And that's, and exactly. And that's what I'm saying. It's, it's two sides of the same coin, right? And the bigger picture, I think it's wonderful. I think it's great how these bands and things were able to continue to work. That's really the bottom line. And hopefully they learn something and hopefully their next record that they do on their own will be better. But hopefully their fans will tell them, oh, it's great, but I really like this other record that you did in the studio with Fancy Pants producer Joe Schmo. <laughs> it sounds much better and I can, I can play it in the clubs, whereas this one, eh, it doesn't quite sit right with the rest. You know, whatever. Right. Rabbit hole, rabbit hole. <laughs> well, you know, my comment on that is, is I love that it's helped to educate artists on recording technology. Some of them have learned an extreme amount. Some have learned just enough to be dangerous. And I think it gives, from their perspective, it gives them a whole new appreciation for folks like us because they see, oh, this actually is harder than I thought it was. Okay, I really can't mix this, but they're still going to send you their mix as a point of reference. And then they're going to get demoitis or I mixed it itis, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. In this mix what, that we did, we really love the bottom end. It's like, yeah, but it's the loudest thing in the mix. Oh, where's the top? <laughs> There's no balance. So your mix yeah. is not, you know, I've had that conversation numerous times. Yeah. In the future, obviously the, the AV design stuff is going to help keep the income coming in. And obviously you have a mortgage that you have to deal with. But as far as, you know, the creative side, making records... Or live streaming, does one pull you over another or do they both kind of, oh, this week I'm feeling live streaming. Uh, this week I'm feeling like I should master a record. No, 100%. I, the one thing I would love to do and I could do the rest of my life is record bands. That's the top thing. Even above, definitely above mixing. Mm -hmm. Mixing is secondary. The actually just recording, the energy exchange between a drummer and myself or a bass player and myself, guitar player and myself, singer and myself. That right there is gold to me. Mm. The thing below that would be playing with tech. <laughs> the next thing down is playing with tech. After that is probably mixing, mixing and mastering. And then below that is probably DJing. And maybe somewhere above that's the live streaming. I think I like live stream DJ to real life DJ because there's less pressure. You can play more what you want. You don't have to worry about having a dance floor hit. So, but no, recording, 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 recording. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that because I, I feel like I get more satisfaction out of mixing or mastering, especially mixing because I just, I like to work in a solitary environment. I was going to ask, are you an introvert? No, no. I mean, oh. you've known me for years. I'm a fairly extroverted guy. 
but, yeah, but you know, where do you get your energy? Do you get it up here or do you get it from out here? I get it from doing my own thing and then handing it off. And it gives me absolute pure satisfaction to hear them go, oh my gosh, this is amazing. That drives me to the ends of the earth. Whereas tracking, I'm like, oh. I love tracking. Are you kidding? <laughs> I love it. I love the getting everything ready, positioning the mics, writing out the track sheet, writing out the input list, setting everything right, setting up the routing, patching, getting sounds, setting up the click, tempo mapping, getting it ready to go, doing takes, working with them, get it, get the get the, get that tempo right, get lock in here. You guys need to lock in better. Overdub, match this, punch this. I love it. Mm. I love, I love to love hear it. that that difference in us. I love to hear that. Mixing is so final. It's so, so much pressure. Everyone's like really in their head and they're all like thinking about like, are they going to hear this enough? Are they going to hear that enough? Do, is this, are we sending the right message? Do, you know, blah, 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 <laughs> blah. But, but it's so nitpicky. Mixing is so prissy and nitpicky and final. And it has to be perfect and blah, blah, blah. We have to have this and this and this rule. We have to follow this rule. There's two guitars. One has to be over here. The other has to be over here. There's three vocals. One, you know, one has to be the heart. <laughs> uh, yawn, yawn, yawn. Yeah, to me, it's like it's like giving me a puzzle and saying, okay, there's a thousand piece it. puzzle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Put yeah. it together. No, I like mixing. Don't get me wrong. I do really enjoy mixing. It's just that I really, really like recording. Yeah. Well, so on that note, studios in New York and the places that you've worked at, have you seen a great fall off of some of these studios? And what's the, that ecosystem like from your, your perspective? A lot of the big studios are gone. A lot of the big studios are gone. What are some of the big ones that have gone? Well, Right Track mm. is gone. Sound on Sound is gone. They were, they were the same. Sony. Avatar is now owned by Berklee College of Music, so it's still there. They still make records, but it's not the same thing. And then the mid-sized studios, I don't even know what they are anymore because I couldn't afford them. They're like unattainable. And then the small studios are going too. I mean, I have this place that I worked since the late 90s. I had been making records there, a place called Seaside Lounge. They were in a mixed-use building. Um, the basement was all artist spaces. And that's where the studio was. And then the, the zoning in the neighborhood changed and it became a residential building. So they had to leave. Hmm. And now the guy's like, I don't even know where. He's more north than me out of the city and I can't make records there anymore. You know, and I've, I've found a couple new smaller places, but it's all about kids with money buying gear and making something pretty that doesn't sound right or having gear, but things don't work, you know? So, I, uh, so what are you going to do when you want to, when tracking picks up for you? In my basement. Oh, <laughs> or, and if I, that's not ready, I mean, my, my partner doesn't really know this. He's, I've told him once, but I don't think he believes me. I'm going to track in my fucking living room. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> it's, it's ceiling. It sounds amazing. And just run Dante down to the basement. I was going to say, yeah. yeah, get some, run some cat, One cable. cat six and, and run that all over the house. Yeah. Cat 6A now, if you want to do it right, but yeah. Well, if you want to check out more about Hillary, you can go to hillaryjohnson.com. That'll be in the show notes. I would also encourage you, this will be in the show notes, to go back and listen to our interview, which was in 2014, episode number three. I have to go back and listen to that. 
I think my voice is much higher back then. I think it's dropped. A, it do, yeah, I think it has dropped a little bit. Maybe you've relaxed a little. Well, maybe that. I think it's also just talking over and over again. You're like, okay, pace yourself. Yeah. Well, Hillary, it's fantastic to see you. Once again, HillaryJohnson.com and episode number three. Thank you so much, Matt. It's always a pleasure, as you know. Well, great to talk to you. You take care. Thanks. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Hillary Johnson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I do want to encourage you, if you have a guest recommendation, suggestion, nomination, whatever, uh, head on over to workingclassaudio.com. There is a guest suggestion form. And if you have a specific thing that doesn't pertain to guest suggestions, you can, of course, reach out to me on the contact form. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And as I always say, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>